Our Father in heaven, we thank you that your mercy is more. We thank you that there, there is more grace in you than sin in us. And you continue to freely pour that out in our life. Lord, we fall and we fail and we sin against you continually. But God, your mercy and grace is always there. Father, forgive us of our sins and our shortcomings. Restore us, renew us, and remind us of the great grace and love that you have for us. Father, we we pray for our brothers and sisters of Redeemer who are not here today. Lord, we have some that are battling sickness, some that are recovering from surgery, some are traveling and enjoying their family and their time together. And Father, we just ask that you be with them, that you're Make your face shine upon them, that you bless them, that they feel the warmth of your love and your mercy and grace and your presence in their life. And Lord, for us that are here this morning, Lord, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to worship you. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to open up your word and to um, read truths about you and about your faithfulness in our lives. About the authority that you have over the church. Lord, and how you have designed and orchestrated and constructed your church to to operate in such a way that honors you with our life. And Lord, as we open up these pages and we read these words, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, illuminate our hearts and minds so that we may see you in all of your beauty and fall more deeply in love with you, that we may look around and see your grace working in the lives of our brothers and sisters and be encouraged by that, Lord, but also that you would give us a, um, that you would reveal to us the seriousness of sin and the effect that it has on the church and the message of the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so, Lord, Lord, we just ask you to to do what only you can do, and that's reveal yourself to us and help us to grow in the grace and knowledge of who you are. In your name we pray. Amen. We're getting close to... Uh, the end of our series in Paul's letters to the church of Thessalonica. And this morning we're going to be looking at 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 3 through 15. I invite you to turn with me and we're going to get right into this. Um, I want to tell you that um, we are covering a lot of verses today. Um, and there are some very, very important truths in this, ver- in this passage of Scripture. And we're just not going to be able to get to everything. And so I encourage you, home groups is tonight. There's going to be things that, that we're, uh, we can discuss further. You know, like um, we, we see the theology of work in this passage. Um, and, how, and it's important that we look at the theology of work because how we view work shapes how we work. And, and that's important for us today. And we kind of see this interwoven into this passage. But we're not going to cover much about the theology of work. Uh, so um, what we want to be able to do is, is walk through this passage together, talk about the structure of this passage, and then get really practical about uh, the role uh, of the church and the polity of church and, and God's faithfulness in working through that. So uh, there's going to be things that we talk about, the faithfulness of God, the commands of the apostles, the, um, uh, the role of church discipline. These things we're not going to be able to exhaustively 
walk through. So we just ask that you make notes and as a home group tonight, you work through some of these things and answer some of these questions um, that we may or may not be able to address today. So we're going to read and and then we're going to jump right in. I'm going to read the um, verses 1 through 15 because I think it's very important for us to uh, to see this in its entire context. Second Thessalonians chapter 3. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you, and that you may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you have received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were, were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we work night and day, that we may not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have the right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. From the beginning of our series in Thessalonians, we have communicated that the entire theme of these letters is teaching Christians how to live life until he comes. We're still there. <laughs> this is about teaching us how to do life together until Christ comes. And in chapter 3, we see the importance of the Word of God in the life of the church. Andrew preached this last week. He says, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead. It's a, it's a it's gospel message going forth, uh, um, it, but it is the word of the Lord. It's very important. It's the word of the Lord that establishes the church. It's the word of the Lord that changes life. And we see that um, throughout this passage of Scripture, but particularly in chapter 3, that learning... In other words, the truth of God's words, hearing God's word, the teaching of God's word, and living go together. Learning and living go together. In other words, if we believe the truth, it changes our life. If we believe the truth, it changes our life. And I was thinking about uh, one of the uh, 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 books that I'm going to reference today. Some of you guys have, may have read it. It's uh, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. It's a great book. Uh, just talks about nine marks of a healthy church, and uh, and some of what we're going to talk about is uh, in this uh, in our message today, in the context of our passage. Uh, uh, Mark Dever he actually deals with that in this book, and he says this: our lives are the storefront display of God's character in the world. Learning and living go together. Until Christ returns, Christ has revealed Himself to us. He has given us truth. He has taught us through the Word of God. And He's teaching us how to live. And in doing so, we are the storefront display of the character of God to the ends of the earth. And so, I just think that's important for us to see as we, as we walk through this, that we're hearing truths about God, but then it's important for us to know those truths and hear those truths, but ultimately what God intends to do is to make us and conform us into the image of Christ, to be more and more like Christ, so that we can display God's character until He comes. There is a redemptive purpose that is happening in our living. 
God is using our living as an example to others so they may, may strengthen the church and also um, call people to salvation uh, through uh, the Son, Jesus Christ. So the structure of our passage today, we're going to look specifically at verses 3 through 15. We're going to see the faithfulness of God. We're going to see a command for the church. And we're going to see a, the role of church discipline. All right, this is the structure that we're going to walk through. So, our, our, like I said before, our intention is just kind of walk through this passage together. We're going to look at some of the things that, that Paul does here and how he communicates to the, uh, um, and basically echoes truths about God that he's already uh, communicated to the church. He's reminding them of those truths. And then we're, at the end, we're going to really just wrap everything up in, in practical application about the role of church discipline in the life of the church. All right, so let's dive in. Verses 3 through 5, we see the faithfulness of God. But the Lord is faithful. So, so what we have here in this very first part of chapter, uh, in verse 3, Paul is affirming God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness to His Word and His people is a recurring theme in all of Scripture. God's faithfulness is tied to the protection of this church in the middle of suffering. Let's don't forget where we're at and who Paul is talking to. This church is being persecuted. This church is, is suffering. Paul has, is say, pray that they would be delivered from wicked and evil men. Not all are faithful, but God is faithful. And so Paul is affirming God's faithfulness to the protection of this church in the middle of evil men against suffering for the gospel. Paul has preached, the church has prayed, and behind both of those is the faithfulness of God who is watching over His Word and carrying out His work. God is faithful. God strengthens us. Look what he says. The Lord is faithful. He will establish you. He will strengthen you. And He will Guard you. God strengthens and protects His church from evil. God strengthens and protects His own in the midst of trials, sufferings, and persecution. God is faithful. This is, the, this is a beautiful truth that we need to affirm in our hearts this morning. God will not allow His Word or His church to fail because He is faithful to it. We are not without defense from the evil of this world. God is faithful to give grace to us. He is faithful to guard us, and He is faithful to guide us. Now, the faithfulness of God does not exclude us from suffering and persecution. We see this. Look what He says. He will establish you and guard you. He doesn't say that He will remove you from it. He says He will establish you and guard you. He will give you the strength. What Paul is saying here is not that He will be excluded from suffering and persecution. You will not be excluded from the attacks from the evil one, but He affirms that even in the most difficult situations of life, that God cares for you, that He loves you, and He strengthens you. So, number one, the faithfulness of God, Paul affirms God's faithfulness. And then Paul does something else. He affirms the authority of Christ. He says, And we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. So Paul affirms the authority of Christ. What do we mean here? Not only was Paul confident in the faithfulness of God to establish and protect the church, but he was also confident that well, Christ will continue to lead them to obey and enjoy the grace of God working in their lives. We have confidence in the Lord about you. He's affirming the authority of Christ working in the life of the believer. And this confidence is that these believers are doing and will continue to do the things that the apostle commands. And this, this confidence is found in the Lord Himself. Now listen, most of these believers had heard and read the apostle's instructions regarding His coming exhortation on work. 
was coming in chapter in verse 6 through 12. Like they had already read this. They had already Paul had come to them and and as we'll see, I spent time sharing this with you over and over. I wrote it down in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. You've heard it. And guess what? This church was living in obedience to this command. The majority of this church was obeying the word of the Lord working in their life. So we see Paul affirming the faithfulness of God, affirming the authority of Christ, working in and through the local church, and then Paul prays for the conduct of the church. He says, May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Paul's confidence in the Lord leads him to pray that the Lord would direct the hearts of this church into God's love and Christ's perseverance. And church, this prayer is astonishing. It really is. I mean, I was meditating on this and and, and I had a hard time getting past it in my study because what Paul is praying for here is he is praying for the Lord to infiltrate the very center of these believers' lives, the very heart. He says, may the Lord direct your heart. He is praying for the Lord to infiltrate the very center of these believers' lives in such a way that they imitate God and Christ the Son. You understand? Like, he prays for the, the Spirit of God to come inside of them and infiltrate their hearts so that they would love like God and that they would persevere in suffering like Christ. This is astonishing. Paul's prayer is that the Lord will lead the church into love and steadfastness. And the context of all of this suggests that they will express their love and patience in and through their obedience to the Lord's command. And this prayer reveals the high and noble, noble motive for the believer's obedience to the Word. God's love and Christ's return. Why should we obey? Why should we obey the Word of God? God loves you. And He demonstrated that love for you in that while you and I were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you. Why should we love? Because God first loved us. Let us not look past that the conduct that God has called us to, the conduct of the church, should be centered on Christ and the Lord, His Spirit working in us, in us to help us imitate the very nature of God. But not only should we obey God's Word because God loves us, but because Christ will return. That Christ will return. This suffering that this church is going through. This persecution that they're having to endure. Paul is saying, obey. Continue to obey. Do this more and more. Because Christ will return. This is the essence of Paul's letters to this church. And it is the motive. It is the high and noble motive of our obedience today. The love of God and the return of Christ. So, This is the faithfulness of God. Paul affirms God's faithfulness. He affirms the authority of Christ and he prays for the conduct of the church. Now let's look on to verse uh, 6 through 12. We see a command for the church. A command for the church. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive for us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we may not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we did not have the right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. 
For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. This is the command of the church. So let's, let's, let's put a little context to this and then we'll walk through it. When Paul and... Uh, his associates were in Thessalonica. They gave instructions, specific instructions for how Christians should live, including teaching about Christian work ethic. We see that through in chapter 3, uh, chapter 4, chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians. We see it continuing into 2 Thessalonians. But not only did they instruct him, they also showed them, right? They showed them by working with their own hands and providing for themselves. And they not only... Uh, uh, taught them verbally. Not only did they show them with their own hands, but they wrote letters. Like, here, here's what you should do. Remember to do this. I hear this that you're not doing this. Make sure that you do this. And so as a result, Paul had, has already addressed the issue of working with your hands. And he's also already addressed in uh, the, the church of the uh, a necessity of work and called on the church to warn others who were not obeying these instructions. And, and we see this again in this context. But still, some were living in deliberate disobedience. And here we have Paul again addressing this matter. Since the situation was not resolved, Paul sends um, what we'll see is, is extensive and strong worded exhortation and course of action that the, sh- the church should take regarding people who are disorderly, people who are unruly, people that are idle, people that are out of step with community. He directly addresses those who are not working, and he addresses the church on what they should do with people who are not working. So the first thing I want us to, to see as we walk through this, uh, this command, is we want to see the authority of the message. The first part of verse 6, it says, Now we command you, brothers, in what? In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what this tells us is that Paul is about to say something very important. And the instructions that he's about to make is not a suggestion to be considered, but a command to be obeyed. And the authority behind this command is not Paul's, but the Lord Jesus Christ. And by basically saying, now we give you this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, he is tying the apostles' authority with the authority of Christ. That they're one in the same. This is very important for us, church. Because when we talk about why do we believe this to be the Word of God? We believe that it is inspired by God and it has all authority. This is the only authority that we have a lot. It's the Word of God. And so when we read a letter and we say, now we command you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we as believers should take it very seriously. This is an important for the church of Thessalonica and it's important for us today. The Bible which includes Paul's letters to the Thessalonians, is the very Word of God and carries all authority over our lives. Amen? Amen. So when we talk about these things and we think about the theology of work and we think about uh, the role of church discipline in our life, uh, in the church life, we're not just talking about, this is not just me as, as one of your pastors, this is not just Phil as one of your pastors saying this or, or our brother in the Lord saying this. This is, the, this is the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ speaking truth into our lives and we need to you know, acknowledge it as such. It's very important. This message is from the Lord. This message is from the Lord. What is the command here? Phil and I talked about this a little bit this week. What is the command? He says, now we command you to do what? That you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. The word idle here, um, when we think about that word um, in the 
in our English language today, we might think, well, it means lazy or it means unresponsive. It's, it, it, but actually, what it means is some of the things that I've already said. It means to be disorderly. It mean, to means uh, uh, out of order. It means to be unruly. Uh, not just to be lazy. It, it carries the meaning of choosing not to conform to the community that you belong, not being in accord or in step with. So, so the word idol is 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 much more um, much uh, has a carries a great uh, more deal of meaning here in the original language than maybe our English language would uh, sort that out. But what was out of order in their lives? What was this disorderly conduct in their life? And the scripture says that some of these brothers, some of these believers were not obeying the word that had been taught and the example that had been set. So the command is to keep away from those who are out of order. And the out of orderness of their life is that they were not obeying the word of God. They were not obeying the command and instruction of the apostles. They were saying is, Paul, that's your words. That's not the word of the Lord. And so... They saw the even the example that they set, and I'll say this before um, we we go on to the example of the apostles. That is very important that in Scripture, that the authority of Jesus Christ, all right, the authority of Christ, and the example that He set, the words of Christ and the actions of Christ, have full authority over our lives. These things are not meant to be separated. The the, the word of Christ and the actions of Christ are both one in the same and they hold authority over our lives. And so is as with the apostles. So we see the authority of the message and we see the example of the apostles. Paul reminds the church of the example he and his companions gave them and the teaching that they delivered concerning believers' responsibility to work. They, they had on-hand teaching. They had a personal example. And, and they had intimate letters that were presented to this church to, to teach them how they were to conduct themselves. And so all of these have become authoritative to the church. This is the Word of the Lord. This is not just something, when you see us doing this, we're doing it because we are setting an example that is meant to be authoritative in your life. That you are to follow that example. Unlike the disorderly brothers or the idle brothers, there was complete harmony between what Paul taught and what Paul did. And that's, that's the point that we're saying. In other words, there was complete and perfect harmony between what Jesus taught and what Jesus did. And both of those together are authoritative in our life. Paul taught them by the word of his mouth. All right. This is what he says. We, we taught you by the word of our mouth. We came to you. We spoke to you. We were with you. We gave you this command. Right? We gave you this command. We taught you. And then we taught you by our example. We didn't have to do it this way. But we did it so that we could give you an example to imitate. The example that Paul set before the church confirms the authority of Christ in his life. And the greatest influence that you and I could ever have, the greatest influence that you and I could ever have in this church and in this world is that that of godly living and godly sacrifice. In other words, that our actions match our words. If you want to influence someone, speak truth, speak the truth, and then show them that you believe the truth by walking as Christ would have you all. So we see the example of the apostles. And then we Paul gives a reminder of the Paul of the apostles teaching. Paul not only reminds these believers of the example of how to work, but he also reminds them of the teaching that he has delivered to the church. If a man will not work, he shall not eat. 
The apostles had given this command on various occasions. Again, and what I believe Paul wants us to see uh, is these idle brothers in this passage were not just confused. All right. They were not just people that were ill informed, but rather they were brothers and sisters in the Lord that were completely disobedient. It's very important for us to see. We're not just seeing this one time thing where Paul has taught them. And, and, and if we go back and we study the, the culture that they were living in, we'll see we could see we're not going to get into a whole lot of that this morning, but you can see why Paul would teach them uh, regarding this this matter. Uh, there was uh, things within this culture uh, the, of the patron client relationship to where you would come alongside into a social environment and you would come alongside of someone and you would just do whatever you would attach yourself to them and they would pay for everything that you have. They would do everything for you. They would give instructions and you would you would speak with them. So whatever they said, you would say whatever they did, you did. There was a lot of that going on in this Mediterranean culture. And Paul addresses some of that, and he addresses it head on while he was with them in the planting of this church. And then he writes about it, and he shows them an example for all of this. And he is doing that, and in the, in the context here, what we're seeing here, and when we see the, we, we move forward and we talk about church discipline uh, here in a few minutes, we need to understand that these brothers are brothers who have heard, they have seen, they have heard, they have read, they have heard, they have seen, nothing's changing. They're continually caught up in the culture that they're living in, and they will not repent of their blatant disobedience. Because the problem here, we're not going to go too much into the theology of work here. The problem here was not that they could not work, or they did not want to work. The problem here is they refuse to work. It's not that they couldn't. There are people that can't work. There are people in this world that physically cannot work. There are people that work a lot of their lives and at some point they get physically unable to, to work and they just simply cannot work anymore. All right? this, is, this is not talking about people who cannot work. And it's not talking about people who necessarily did not want to work. It's not that they did not want to work. It's that they refused to work. And this is an issue of the heart. And it goes back to why Paul would pray, may the Lord direct your heart. Because what he was saying was, is this, this is a heart issue. We're not talking about a, surf, uh, a surface level, ill-informed, confused believer. We're talking about someone who hears the word, reads the word, and sees the word displayed in their life and says, no, I'm not going to follow those commands. They were living in sin. They were living in sin. So Paul then brings into view once again the authority of Christ over this exhortation when he says, now such persons we command in verse 12, now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly, and to earn their own living. He brings that back into view. Paul, Notice that Paul said, some. We're not talking about a majority here. We're talking about a minority of this church. A minority. Now, such persons. Now, some. We, we've heard of some that are not following this command, who are walking in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. And, and let me clarify this before we go on uh, on busy bodies, right? Busy bodies um, is a unique word um, because when we think about a busy body in our, in our culture, we think about somebody that just gossips, you know, they're just all up in somebody's business, right? Um, and they're just spreading this and spreading that. They won't, you know, they're just talking about this, that, and the other. And this word here, busybody, it, it doesn't mean that they're not working. It means that they are meddling 
It means that they are caught up in the affairs of the culture. That they're caught up in the affairs of the patron. They're, 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 they're into things and they're about things that are, are not, not what God has called them to be about. And so they're just kind of meddling in that. doesn't mean that they're necessarily gossip. They're, they're, not, they're not busy doing what God has called them to do. They're living in disobedience and they're just meddling in the affairs of others. This is a serious matter for Paul. Paul loves this church. He cares for this church. And he's wanting to love this church well. And I'll say this before we get on to our last point. The well-being of the church, the well-being of this church, the well-being of the church of Thessalonica depends on our listening and our obeying as the word comes to us through the apostles in the New Testament. So, so I, the well-being of Redeemer Church comes from when we hear the Word of God and we're called to obey the Word of God that we actually do it. Nine marks of a healthy church, right? We want to be a healthy church, then we listen and obey. We trust the faithfulness of God working in and through our lives we affirm the authority of Christ in our life and we seek to obey through the grace of God to work out our salvation. To work out our salvation in fear and trembling, honor and reverence before the Lord because it is a high and noble motive to honor God with our life. He urges them to live in the in the same way he had already addressed in 1 Thessalonians 4.11, to live quietly, to work quietly. Was he saying, don't meddle. Be responsible. Don't meddle. Don't get caught up in the culture. The way we view our work, again, I said this on the onset, the way we view work will shape how we do work. The way we view Christ the way we view the faithfulness of God, the authority of Christ in our lives, will shape how we live our lives. Our theology shapes our orthodoxy, and our orthodoxy fuels our living. This is very important for us. What we believe about God disciplines us, right? It, it, it creates us. It's like so that we think rightly about God, and when we think rightly about God, it looks like this in our lives. And it's all the grace of God working through us. It's foundational. It's the Lord that's faithful. It's the Lord that does the work. So that's very important as we look at our, our final structural point of that, and then we're going to get into some practical things here in a second. Is we see the faithfulness of God, we see the command for the church. And then we see the role of church discipline in the life of the church. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. So in our last few verses, first, Paul turns from addressing the idol Remember when he says, hey, now such persons we command and we encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly. In other words, be about their business. Don't meddle. Be responsible. Work quietly. Go to work. Do the things that God has commanded you to do. Be an example for the earth. He, he, he turns that attention and begins speaking directly to the rest of the members of the congregation with instructions on how to handle Church members, believers who are living in disobedience to the Word of God. I will say this, that I believe that these verses contain some of the most important teaching in the New Testament on the subject of church discipline and the role it plays in the life of the church. It's very important for us to see. The Bible, if we look at Matthew 18, if we look at 1 Corinthians 5, uh, 6, if we look at Titus uh, chapter 1 or Titus 3. We, we look at all of these things. We look at 2 Timothy 3. There are a lot of things in Scripture that, that, that formulate how we are to deal with that, both personally and corporately. 
with, with different things. But in this verse of Scripture, I, I believe it contains some of the most important teaching in the New Testament on the role and responsibility that the church plays in, in, in church discipline and why that is important. But the first thing that Paul does is he encourages those believers. He turned his attention away from those who were idle, and he turned his attention to those who were working and laboring for the good of the gospel. Paul's message to the majority is not, is not that they should not become exhausted. Look what he says. He says, as for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. When we think about weary, I think about being exhausted, right? It's not that they should not become exhausting in doing what's right, but they should not give up. They should not, the, the, this, this meaning here is they, they should not abandon their efforts to live in obedience to the gospel. Listen, even if, um, think about um, uh, the, the, the truth of Galatians 5, 9, where it says a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Like, like sin in the life of the believer always affects the entire church. Right? This is important for us to see. Right? And sin has, is a part of this church. There, it's not a majority of the church that is living in blatant disobedience. It is a minority, but it is affecting the church. And Paul's first message, right, directly to this church in, in regards to their role in church discipline is, listen, don't give up. Don't give up. Continue to do what is right. And I am positive as I have been in this situation, both as a sinner and one who has been able to observe the sin of others, they were probably discouraged that their brothers and sisters in Christ were not obeying the commands of the apostles. Because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. There was a discouragement that had to be in their life. And I'm sure that they were discouraged that they were choosing to dishonor the gospel. Think about that. This is not something lighthearted. This is not something that we just brush away. But they have chosen to dishonor the gospel rather than doing the good work of the gospel. And Paul says, listen, I want to encourage you. Don't abandon what's right. Keep doing good. Keep obeying. Keep by the power and grace of God. Keep doing what you're doing. Just do it more and more. Right? We hear that. It was a lot in the first letter. Just keep working. The bad example of a few saints can destroy the devotion of the majority of saints. It can be, it can be setting to us. It can upset us. It can stop us in the track. It can be a weight to us and to the church. All right? So Paul encourages the church, and then he gives specific direction to the church. This is very, very simple direction. We're just going to walk through it, right? We just, and then we're going to talk through it a little bit, all right? He says, do not grow weary in doing good. He says, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, first, Paul says what? Take note. He says, Take note of that person. Take note of those who are disobedient in the church. Observe. Observe the life of the people in the church. Observe the life of the people in the church. Take note of those who do not obey the commands of Scripture. It doesn't mean that you should condemn someone. It doesn't mean that you should just throw them away. Paul says, take note, observe. And then what does he say? He says, second, have nothing to do with them. Have nothing to do with those who are disobedient in the church. Disassociate yourself with those who are living in constant, blatant, disobedience to Scripture. Have nothing to do with them. Have nothing to do with them. Let's look on. Third, Paul gives purpose to the disassociation. I love this part. Like, so he says, don't have nothing to do with them. 
And this is very important for us. This is one of the reasons why I believe it is. It is it, it, this is one of the greatest passages on church discipline and the role it plays in the life of, of, of our church even today. Take note of that person, have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. His purpose to the disassociation. Church discipline always has a redemptive goal in mind. It's not so that we can crush someone when they're down. And it's not so that we can condemn someone because they're living in sin. It's so that they would turn from their sin and put their faith and trust in Jesus and God would be honored with their life. In this culture, socially dishonoring behavior would have been crushing. And it would not have been redemptive. In, if you study Mediterranean culture, you'll realize to be a part of a family, to be a part of a social group, that was your life. That was your identity. And to say, you know what, we're not having anything to do with you anymore, would have been crushing. Exactly, you know, we've talked about how ostracized the this church had been from society because they believed in Christ. Much of their persecution and suffering came from that. Could you imagine giving your life to Christ, walking away from your cultural norm, your, your, your social circle, to this group of people abandoning that life, coming to this life? This was your family, and then all of a sudden, because of your life, this family said just began to disassociate you? How crushing would that be if there was no redemptive purpose? But see, that's not how God works, and that's not how church polity works. All right? This is important for us. The church is not like the culture. I love what Gene Green had to say about this. The concern that motivated this call to separation is not the re that the rest of the church would not be infected by the behavior of the unruly, but that the unruly would respond in faith and repentance to the discipline. There is purpose for disassociation, and that purpose is for that child of God to be restored to God, to be reconciled completely to God, to be restored into the life of the church. Alright? So we see, one, right? One, take note of the person. Two, have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed, the redemptive person. Third, what does he say? Alright? Paul directs the church to what? Warn him as a brother. Warn him as a brother. Now he prefaces that, right, with some very important words. Paul directs the church to warn those who are disobedient in the church and to regard them as brothers to be restored, not as enemies to be cast out. This is important for us today. Paul is deeply concerned with the well-being of the church. And he is teaching the church to have the same God-honoring concern. Be concerned about the well-being of the church. Church discipline did not come from some trivial offense. But this discipline comes from continued blatant disobedience. The nature of this discipline is disassociation. The responsibility for administering this uh, discipline is gentle, right? It is redemptive, and it is corporate. As for you, brothers, don't grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what he says in this letter, take note of that person, have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. You know, leaders of even Redeemer Church, we may take initiative in regards to church discipline, but the decision and the action of church discipline is corporate in nature. It is the congregation that unifies. It is the congregation that pledges allegiance to the commands of Christ and the authority of Christ and His Word. And we submit ourselves to that and we understand that the role of church discipline is not for somebody to be cast out, but somebody to be restored. 
And so that spirit of discipline is gentle, it's redemptive, and that person purpose of discipline is positive and is constructive. I want us to see that, and I think that's very important because when we think about discipline, we think about a lot of times a heavy hand. We think about um, a father who is swift to correct. We think about a lot of negative connotations because of what we see and what we, what we have experienced in imperfect fathers, in an imperfect society, living in an imperfect culture. But this is not the culture of the church. And this is not... <laughs> It's not the example that we have in a father who loves us, who cares for us, and wants the best for us. And so as we see that, we understand that the purpose of this discipline is positive, is constructive. It is is to to help a brother, is to warn a brother. And I love the fraternal language here. I love the language here. He doesn't say that they're non-believers. He doesn't say that they're heretics. He says they're brothers. They're brothers. In other words, they are part of the family of God and they have been deceived by the evil one. And they have chosen to not believe the truth about God and to buy the lie of Satan. And they're living in that disobedience And God says the most loving thing that you could do through the Apostle Paul is, you know what? Take note of that person. Don't have anything to do with them. So that they may come to repentance. Warn them continually. Sin, sin, sin. We look at the the role of church discipline in our life, and then we see the work of God through church discipline. This is very important. We look at the whole thing. God is faithful. God is faithful. Right? The Lord is faithful. He will establish you. He will guard you. He keeps you. He regards you. He restores you. And He grows you through church discipline. Church discipline is not a negative thing. Church discipline is a God-ordained thing. It's very important for us to understand. We look at something like Matthew 18 when we talk about personal difference. When the brother has wronged you. What does the Bible say? Go to that brother. Say, brother, you have wronged me. If that brother won't listen, what does Matthew 18 tell us to do? It says, take a couple more people. There is a a convincing thing that is going on here. There is a winsome thing that is trying to happen here. It's It's not necessarily a negative thing. You're dealing with a sin, the offense, a personal difference between you and someone else. But what happens if that person still will not? Then they're brought before the church and fall under church discipline. Where you what? You've taken notice, you disassociate, and you winsomely warn them to return to Christ. Right? So, when should we exercise church discipline? When, when should this help us? And that's where the Word of God is so important. And personal difference in Matthew 18 to doctrinal error, 2 Timothy. What does Paul tell Timothy in 2 Timothy? He says, teach them. If they don't know, teach them. If there's doctrinal error and somebody's teaching something or something that somebody believes something that they shouldn't, what, is, what does Paul tell Timothy? Teach them. Come alongside them. Show them their error. Right? If there's doctrinal error. And then, what does Titus 1 say? It says, they continue to have doctrinal error in their life. Rebuke them. Say, you're wrong. This is what God has said. You're wrong. Don't continue to teach that. This is what you should be teaching. So when should we exercise church discipline? When there's personal differences in sin and conflict. When there's doctrinal error. Or like Galatians 6, when someone is overtaken by sin. When they're overtaken by sin. When sin has has engulfed their life and hindered their walk, 
Then, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritually should do what? Should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Right? When should we practice church discipline? What, what should we, how should we exercise that? When someone's overtaken by sin. Or you look at Titus 3 when, when there's somebody who is, who is being a heretic. They're in the church. And all of a sudden, they start, they start going off on, on, on something that is uh, not in line and in step with the Word of God. And they start adding to and taking away from the Gospel, from the Word of God. We address that. We address that in the church. Or 1 Corinthians 5, and even into 1 Corinthians 6, when somebody is living in open immorality, right? When somebody is living in open sexual sin, when, when, when it's obvious that when you take note of that person, that they're not in step with the gospel, that they're living in contrary, uh, contrariness to the gospel, we take note of that person. And then church discipline needs to be exercised. The next question I think we need to ask ourselves when we talk about the work of God through church discipline is not only how we should exercise or when we should exercise church discipline, but what is my role in church discipline? What is my role? And this is where I think this is really, really practical for us. Because church discipline is very hard. Because it's very personal. I've had, um, I think... A few weeks ago, we talked about in build about just relating, and I don't remember exactly when it was, but relating to people when you saw somebody in sin, you know, times where you had a good positive experience of helping that person see their sin and a negative experience. And there was great examples given when church discipline is not done correctly in the right spirit of which the discipline that that the Scripture informs us, it can be dangerous for the church. It's already going to be difficult for the church because sin distorts everything. <laughs> sin makes a mess over everything, including our lives and, and the life of our church. But this passage of Scripture in Thessalonians is so, so awesome for us. What is my role? What is your role in church discipline according to to 2 Thessalonians 3. Number one. Number one thing. What should you do? What are you responsible for? What am I responsible for? Number one. We should encourage our brothers. That God is faithful. Number one thing. Encourage our brothers and sisters in Christ. That God is faithful, that God will establish you, that God will guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence, not in ourselves, but in the Lord Jesus Christ to do the work and continue the work. You see a brother and you take note of a brother or sister who's living in sin, the first thing you do, go to them and say, Encourage them that God is faithful. He loves you. He cares for you. He keeps you. He guards you. Second thing that we, second responsibility, second role of my responsibility in church discipline is that we should pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Is this not what Paul did? He said, What? May the Lord, may the Lord, Direct your hearts to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. Encourage them that God is faithful, but then pray for them. Pray for them. Pray specifically for them though, church. Not just that they would see their sin, but that the Lord would direct their hearts to the love of God and the perseverance of Christ. That is so key. I think it's key in so many different aspects of our life. As I read that and I was meditating on just that prayer, like I told you earlier, I had a hard time getting past anything else. Um, but <clears throat> I question 
Lord, am I praying this for my brothers and sisters of Redeemer? Just pull church discipline away. <laughs> am I praying that the Lord would direct the heart of Christopher Heiss to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ? I was deeply convicted by that. And, uh, you know, in the context of church discipline, pray for Pray specifically. But in the context of our church and our love for one another, pray that prayer. <laughs> Lord, direct our hearts to just love like God. And wanting to love like God is first, well, our hearts are directed to the actual love of God. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Pray for Him. The next thing that we must do is we must keep away from them. This is very, very difficult. Have nothing to do with them. Again, they're a brother. It's hard. Disassociation hurts. But part of love, part of love is seeking that highest good of another person. What is their highest good? Is it for them to feel good about us? No. It's for them to be restored to God. And uh, that's not easy. I'm not... (laughs) And that's the reason why it's a, it is a corporate thing, church. It's not just a singular thing, you know. It's not, it's not just if, if, if I'm in sin that it's just Chris's responsibility to come to me and say, you know what, you got to do. No, it's a corporate thing because we all want God to be honored and glorified and we all want to submit to the authority of Christ in our life and enjoy the faithfulness of God and worship that working in our life, we can't do that. We can't do that if our highest motivation is our own self-preservation. Our highest motivation should be that God be honored through that. So we must, in those times, keep away. But it doesn't mean that we don't speak truth. Because the last thing is to warn them and call them to repentance. And faith. Warn them. As a brother, don't throw them out as an enemy. You might not fellowship with them. In other words, you might not worship with them. You might not partake of the ordinance of the Lord's Supper with them. You might not walk in life and step in accord with them in life. You might not be doing life together. But you still have that relationship because they are part of the universal church. And you want them to be restored. And so every opportunity that you have, you say, repent and believe. Repent and believe. I believe the message here is profoundly important and there's so much to say about church discipline. There's some great books out there. This is a great one. I think one day we may even go through this as a church and a resource this because we want to be a healthy church. A healthy church is one that seeks to honor God in everything that they do because that is the highest and noblest call that there is. And part of that is being Living life. Living life as God has commanded us to live. Why? Because we are the storefront display of the character of God to this world. The Word of God may speed ahead and be honored. If we really want that to happen in our life, then we will obey the commands of Scripture. That we won't just live in disobedience and refuse to do what God has commanded, but we will willfully and joyfully submit to the commands of the Lord, and we will call others to do the same. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your specific instructions regarding the role of church discipline in the life of the church. Lord, I know that You have much to say about this. Lord, and I pray as a church that we would seek to be taught by Your Word. Lord, this is just one moment to where we look at this text and we walk through this, but church discipline is important to the life of the church because Your honor is at stake. 
Lord, and we understand and we believe the truth of Jesus when He said, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men to Myself. So our obedience is not based upon what we want or what we don't want. Lord, but let our obedience be because we want other people to see You and Your glory and the beauty of the cross. See the devastation of their sin being placed upon Christ. But seeing His preserving, persevering love. As He hung on the cross and He bared the penalty of sin to the very end. Until it was finished. The people would see that and they would come running to that, crying out and say, I am a sinner and I need Jesus to save me. Lord, help us to grow in love for one another. Help us to grow in the sense of our seriousness over our own sin, as we sang about prior to the sermon. Lord, break our hearts for what breaks yours. And in your mercy, Lord, receive us, forgive us, cleanse us, restore us, and bring us back into sweet fellowship with you. Lord, do this work in the hearts and lives of the people of Redeemer this morning and use us to magnify your name, even through very difficult times. In your name we pray. Amen.